Is your company's brand feeling a little tired? Then you need to know about Schoolhouse, a brand design agency. Taking a multidisciplinary approach, Schoolhouse collaborates with evolving and emerging brands to unleash their character and express their individualism. They know the value of client relationships based on quality and trust. At Schoolhouse, it's not only what they do, it's how they do it that makes the biggest impact. Which is why Schoolhouse is focused on finding your brand truth and not just your brand story. Schoolhouse, the branding brand. Learn more at www.weareschoolhouse.com. Sign up for the Schoolhouse Weekly and follow the journey of Schoolhouse founder Christopher Skinner from former LVMH executive to entrepreneur. Again, that's www.weareschoolhouse.com to learn more. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Welcome. This is Smart People Podcast. This is where we have conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I am Chris Stemp, and today we speak with Don Draper. No, I'm just kidding. Obviously, Don Draper is a fictional character, but we are talking about advertising agencies. I don't know anything about advertising agencies. I mean, they try to sell me stuff, I think. So I reached out to the guy who wrote a book, and it has one of the coolest titles. It's Madison Avenue Manslaughter. Of course, I want to talk to him and want to see if you want to be on the show. Turns out he does. So I read his bio. What is happening? Our guest this week went to Princeton. He went to Harvard. He then worked at Bain and Company, Boston Consulting Group, had a little stint at McKenzie in there. He now runs his own company. I mean, if you look at that pedigree, it's kind of insane. So in the beginning of the episode, I just asked him, like, how does somebody do all this? Who is this? Superman when it comes to resumes. His story is really interesting. We spend a lot of the first portion of the interview talking about his story. And I know some of you may be like, dude, just get to the meat. I want to hear about advertising agencies. But to me, a lot of it is the stories behind the people we connect with. That's why John and I started this thing. And so it felt good to kind of get back to that, have a conversation with somebody, you know, miles and miles away, living a different life that on paper seems one way, but when you sit down and you get somebody to to really kind of tell their story in a genuine and authentic way, you hear what it really was like. And then we do, we get into advertising in a way that I was really unaware of, kind of what's going on, why the industry is in shambles, what new media and new advertising has done. Now that I've told you his entire resume, let me tell you who it is. Our guest this week is Michael Farmer. As I mentioned, he's the author of the brand new book, Madison Avenue Manslaughter, an inside view of fee-cutting clients, profit-hungry owners, and declining ad agencies. Michael was a strategy consultant with the Boston Consulting Group, a director at Bain & Company. Michael served as associate dean for policy and resources at Harvard, and he spent five years in the U.S. Navy. To me, fascinating stuff, just another notch in my educational belt. We got big things happening here at Smart People Podcast, and we want to let you know about them. We want to involve you in them, send out surveys, or figure out what you need, what you want. We really only do that through our newsletter, so go to smartpeoplepodcast.com, sign up for that. You get about an email every couple weeks at best. We're not like really that great at sending things out. We also do giveaways We send out prizes, we send out books, we send out things we read and enjoy. That's where you can find us, smartpeoplepodcast.com. Check out the newsletter. So let's turn it over to Michael as we talk about the manslaughter that's happening on Madison Avenue. Not really, it's a metaphor. Calm down. Hope you enjoy. As I mentioned, I... The title of the podcast, Smart People Podcast, and as I've learned over time, smart people come in a variety of packages. You know, we we interviewed a guy 
who owned a bed bug business. And I, I enjoyed talking to him. I thought that was a very cool topic. And then we have people such as yourself that the resume reads it's a different level, right? Like I said, Princeton, Harvard, Bain, and BCG. If you look at best places to work, top consulting firms in the world, it's Bain and BCG. And best schools, Princeton and Harvard. So I don't know. Give me, give me a little background there. Okay. Well, for starters, I grew up, uh, I grew up just outside of Chicago, born the very beginning of World War II, you know, so I'm over 70 right now. My parents were uh, teenagers when the Depression hit, and uh, neither one of them, you know, I mean, neither one of them went to college. They, they really struggled economically and uh, met each other, fell in love, got married, and, and had three kids uh, in the 40s. And we didn't have any money, you know. So I was just a kid, you know, growing up, listening to my parents say, you have to go to college. You've got to save money. We don't have any money. You've got to get a job. You've got to get good grades. You have to do this. So I was under the gun to, you know, because they kept saying, well, you, you don't want our life. <laughs> you want a better life. And you know what it was like. That really was, you know, after the war, a colossal economic boom. Um. I didn't know it at the time, but, you know, I studied hard. I got good grades in, in school. I was terrible at that athletics. Hmm. Uh, I did a lot of reading. I guess I was a bit of a loner, and I read a lot of books and played musical instruments and things. And uh, by the time I got to college, I had no idea what I was going to do, but I, there was a world out there that I knew I wanted to see. I had read books about Paris um, and I always wanted to live there and I had studied French in high school. So I thought, you know, I know there's a bigger world than Chicago. I want to get there somehow. And, uh, I talked to a math teacher that I had and I, cause I couldn't get any advice from my parents. And I said, what do you think I should do? And he said, oh, you must go to Princeton. Hmm. I'd never heard of Princeton and no one from my high school ever went East to school. They all went to the university of Illinois or small private schools, you know, in Iowa or Wisconsin or Illinois or something like that. So I wrote away for a catalog and it just kind of blew me away. And uh, <clears throat> I applied. My father said, well, you know, how are you going to afford that? Right. <laughs> uh, it turns out that I met a, a, a kid my age, a, little, a year older, who was going to Purdue, and he went on a Navy scholarship, an NROTC scholarship. And I, I met him in a church group or something, and he, he told me what he was doing. And I thought, wow, that's great. I looked into it. It turned out that all the Ivies and Stanford and Berkeley and all the all those schools, you know, had Navy programs. So the deal was I applied for a Navy scholarship that would pay my way through Princeton, and I'd have to serve every summer plus four years after graduation as a naval officer. Mm -hmm. Make a long story short, you had to compete to get in that program. And of course, you had to you had to be accepted by Princeton. And then they had to put the deal together. Uh, but that all worked out. So I got a scholarship. I went to Princeton and then to, uh, you know, to cover the rest of my expenses. Um, I worked jobs. I bus tables. I was a waiter. I delivered newspapers in the morning. Um, let me, I learned, let, hmm? I, I, I gotta jump in here because, you know, you gloss over it a little bit and obviously we're a little different when it comes to generations and age. Um, I completely respect everything that you've done. I think you may have been, it might be uh, due to your upbringing or the times, but that just seems like a hard work ethic from the beginning. I mean, did you, were you always just interested in learning because obviously you had the grades you said you read a lot of books did you always realize i have my head on straight i'm you know going to work hard to you know realize okay i want to go to princeton and i'm going to do that by serving in the navy in the summers my summer job i worked at an airport throwing luggage around you know and, yeah. and played baseball and i i <clears throat> just well, wonder yeah the navy paid my full tuition and they paid for my books and they gave me, it won't sound like much now, but it was $50 a month, which was spending money. <laughs> and I had, and tuition, by the way, 
you know, we're going back a ways. It was, it was a true. different world. Tuition was $1,300. Wow. <laughs> um, and room and board was $1,200. So, you know, you were looking at an outlay of 2500 But I think my father, you know, in a good year, he might have made nine or $10,000. Okay. I mean, you, you have to really understand that everything was scaled way back. But university tuitions then were within striking distance of lower middle class families. That's cr- I was just thinking if you do the math, you said $2500 for room and board plus tuition and yeah. your father made say 10,000 a year. So, so let's just say it was a quarter of his salary. Exactly, quarter salary. So you take average salary now 45, 50 grand, that's the equivalent of saying that's you right. can go and stay at Princeton for $15,000. No. By the way, there is a book in uh, I and what that I may be interested in writing is what happened. Yeah. Uh, because there is an answer for why universities have had tuition that has grown at double the rate of inflation mm-hmm. for 40, 50 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not because the quality of education has gone up for undergraduates. So, sure. so I, listen, I, I don't want to exaggerate uh, how much drive I had. I was a hardworking <laughs> kid. I'd had a job since I was 11. I was a pin boy in a bowling alley. And then I was, uh, you know, in high school, I was a, um, oh, a sales clerk in an Army Navy store. And um, and I was, you know, I knew how to make money. I mean, I could do that. And I solved the tuition problem by going with the Navy. But it did mean I didn't have a summer job. There right. was no way of having a summer job because I was out going to be out at sea. Right. But still, my tuition was covered. And I discovered by having a whole range of jobs at Princeton meant I had to get up early in the morning, mm-hmm. you know, 5 a.m. to deliver papers and then work as a busboy or a waiter before I went to class. But I left Princeton without any debt. And uh, it was because I had jobs and uh, and I had the Navy scholarship and the spending money. I mm-hmm. never got a dime from, from home. So, you know, I did that and spent every summer at sea or – uh, the various places that the Navy sent us. Mm-hmm. And uh, I finished, uh, you know, finished Princeton with a degree in English. And um, and uh, I was commissioned the day I graduated as an ensign. And uh, within two weeks, I was on a ship, a destroyer, uh, you know, headed out of Norfolk Harbor wow. for the Mediterranean. It was, is, it was quick as that. But I was pretty well trained mm-hmm. for the job in the Navy that I had. And um, I spent three years at sea uh, on two different ships. And then um, I applied to become a ROTC instructor uh, for what I thought would be my last year in the Navy, the fourth year. But they they gave me the assignment. But what I didn't know is that they kept me a fifth year because of the Vietnam War. So I ended up spending two years teaching at Iowa State. By this time, I was married. And I was what? Uh, by this time I was 28 mm-hmm. and, uh, I was an English major and I'd been a naval officer for five years and I thought, what do I do now? Right. And I mean, again, I, I really didn't have a vision and I went to a Princeton reunion, I guess. Uh, and I met a friend of mine again, this is another thing. And he was going to Harvard business school and he said, you got to go to Harvard business school. That's a great thing to do. You know, it'd be perfect for you. I guess he, he told me that the year that I had one more year to go in the Navy. So I spent that year when I was at Iowa State. I took some economics courses and I took an accounting course and a computer programming course along with my teaching responsibilities. I took the exam for Harvard and got in. Um, and so at age 28 or so I went to Harvard's business school with my wife and uh, and scared as can be because what did I know about business absolutely nothing Um, and it's a funny system because at Harvard you uh, you're in a class of 75 people you're three classes a day with them and each class is an hour and a half long and it's the case method you do three cases a day an Mm -hmm. hour and a half each you read a case it, it describes a situation it's got some numbers in it and the instructor who's really just more like an orchestra conductor Mm -hmm. rather than an instructor says okay what should mr jones do 
who wants to start? And then someone will raise their hand or they're picked on. And then they sort of lay out what they think the situation is, what the guy's problem is, what he should do about it. And then everyone else says, no, I don't think so. It's a very combative, but a friendly sort of combative thing. But nobody knows how well you're doing or anything like that, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah. And there were people that were CPAs. There were people who, when I'd been out at sea, had been working on Wall Street. There were some very sophisticated folks in that class. And I just was scared silly like <laughs> everybody else. We were all convinced that we didn't belong there and that we were frauds for had, for having gotten in or to telling some pretty good lies on our application. <laughs> and... Uh, and then I was surprised to find out in November of that year, after we had our first midterms, that I was kind of the number one guy in our section. Wow. And um, and certainly it wasn't because I had any business, uh, uh, you know, background or anything. I actually think being an English major uh, was helpful because reading these cases to me was like reading a novel ah. and trying to and, and realizing there were several possible interpretations, just like. Moby Dick could be a, a novel about whaling, or it could be uh, about capitalism because the ship is a little factory, right? Or it could be spiritual with uh, Ahab, you know, trying to become a god. It could be many different things. And um, one of the, uh, I thought one of the interesting things about the case method was coming up with a an analysis that I knew would be a little different from everybody else's mm. based on the facts. Whereas the, the folks who had accounting degrees or something felt, felt there was an answer and they had to figure out what the answer was and they would describe the answer and that was it. Mm-hmm. So flexibility was a key thing. You know, it's funny. I, I always said this. I school was always easy for me for as long as I can remember. I didn't go to Harvard or anything, but um, even college, you know, and I still tell my parents this. I say, it's not that I was smart. It's just I knew what the teachers or the professors wanted to hear, or I knew what the right angle to approach it was. It wasn't that I memorized it. And it's kind of similar in the sense that you just said, well, I know how to approach this and I'm going to do it this way. And and it was the sticking out from the crowd that actually made you it rise above. It never bothered me that um, it never bothered me that I never had the notion that there was a right answer and I had to figure it out. <laughs> right. There was a situation and some numbers, and then you had to interpret those. And you mm-hmm. came up with the best interpretation that you could have. I guess my interpretations were different um, than my classmates. And in some cases, I think I probably did a pretty good job uh, annihilating them. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Not always. Yeah. But the funny thing is, though, that time when I learned, and I learned from an instructor in front of everyone that I that I had come out very high in the class, it was like, oh, my God, maybe I'm okay. Maybe I'm good. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm not a fraud after all. Mm-hmm. And I was 28, and I don't think I'd ever had that kind of feedback at any point. Sure. Um, I certainly didn't have it at Princeton, um, but I did get it at business school and it helped me. It gave me a lot of confidence. You know what, so, you know yeah. what you kind of define or outline right there. And I urge kind of any of our listeners, if they haven't heard of it, um, there's an amazing book, uh, called, uh, mindset by Carol Dweck. And she talks about growth mindset versus fixed mindset. And it goes on to explain that, uh, those who, who have a growth mindset, which is not being concerned about just getting the answer right, but more concerned about the process, learning, and becoming better, it's really to get better, um, tend to do better in all almost all aspects of life. And it's a real, what you were doing was kind of a microcosm of that, right? It's like you weren't so concerned about the right answer that it blinded you from the the truth, if you will. No, it, it was it was always my truth about the cases, mm-hmm. and I didn't I, I didn't have any complexes about it. But there really were people in my section who drove themselves crazy, uh, who had met with study groups every night. Uh, you know, they would try to crack the case, they would try to come up with the right answer. And I always felt, now this is an individual thing. This is you read you read the situation, you look at the data, uh, and you try to come up with 
um, I thought a unique way of defining Mr. Jones's problem in mm-hmm. these cases. And by the way, that has stood me in very good stead as a lifelong consultant, because all I've really done in my career in different parts of the world is walk into real life situations that are like those business school cases. You don't know what the situation truly is. Um, you you talk to people, you interview them, you get the data that you can, but you have to develop a vision of what you think the guy's real problem is. And one thing I learned in business school that has been very helpful throughout my career is that I spend most of my time in the beginning of an assignment thinking about what is his real problem. I know what he's described to me. I know what he tells me his, his pain point is or her pain point or what the company's pain point is. But I'd really like to see the data hmm. and I'd like to develop my own point of view about it. And that creative activity has always um, taken me in a different direction uh, or suggested different solutions than the kinds of things that my clients have looked for. Now, that hasn't always been a comfortable thing. Uh, but often I will play back to them um, and spend a lot of time doing this, in fact. Listen, looking at your situation and looking at the facts, what I think your real problem is this. I'll give you an example. I, I work with ad agencies today uh, as a consultant, and they think their, their fees are being cut every year by procurement. Okay, that's one thing that's going on. And their definition is procurement, they're just jerks. <laughs> they don't understand the great value. They just cut costs. That's all they do. And... Um, and so what the agencies have to do, because they're all publicly owned, is they've got to cut their costs every year. And so most of the people in the financial organization spend their time downsizing and mm-hmm. thinking about how to how to do things cheaper. They don't spend any time thinking about how they get more income. Right, right. <laughs> and it, the truth of the matter is, uh, and this is one of the things that my book is about, called Madison Avenue Manslaughter, it's about... If you have growing work that is more complicated work because you have to do digital work, you've got to do social media, you've got to do television, you've got to do print, you've got to do radio, you've got to do all these things for your clients today. But you're trying to do it with fewer people who are yes. more junior because you're cutting costs. You're not going to do a very good job. Yes. And when you don't do a very good job for your clients, they're going to cut your fees even further. So if they had a predilection to cut your fees to start with because they're procurement people – and you're trying to deliver more and more quality work over time, uh, you're failing. So I always said, you do not have a cost problem. You have an income problem. And the reason you have an income problem is because you are not delivering quality. You are not aligned with your client's need for improved profits as opposed to your need to generate what you consider to be highly creative work. They misdefine their problem. They, know, think they, they think their gap is we're not creative enough. Right. And we need to be creative like the good old boys were back in the 60s. And the fact of the matter is clients just need profits and growth. That's what they want. That's all they care about. And uh, agencies are not aligned with that. So they have mystified their problem and therefore they've mystified the solutions and they're digging themselves into a deeper and deeper hole. That's well, a, a classic sort of Harvard Business School type case. Well, this is, I mean, it's a perfect transition because I, I'm, I was really, I, I was fascinated by your background and thank you for that. But I, I'm also interested and I want to talk, spend the rest of the time talking about your book and then your experiences in the advertising world. So as you mentioned, the book is called Madison Avenue Manslaughter, an inside view of fee cutting clients, profit hungry owners and declining ad agencies coming out in September. So I think this episode will air soon. So it's, it's almost out. Um, so the first question I had for you along those lines, so we can give ourselves that baseline is what did an ad agency look like 20 years ago? And, oh, perfect. And yeah. what does it look like today? Great question. Um, and just bear in mind, I had never worked in the industry until it turns out to be about 25 years ago. Perfect. Uh, I was with uh, Boston Consulting Group in Bain and never worked in the industry, although I interviewed ad agencies sometimes on behalf of my clients and found them to be incredibly smart, 
incredibly smart people. Uh, and we're talking now in the 70s. I remember doing some work at BCG and I interviewed uh, some executives at Young and Rubicam who were handling a product that one of my clients had. And I, those guys were great. They were fabulous. They were madmen, but they were fabulous. They knew everything about the brand. They knew the numbers. And that stuck with me. And we're talking about the 70s. Uh, by 1990, uh, I left Bain um, in, and I was in London at the time and uh, set up my own strategy consulting firm. And, uh, you know, I did I had industrial type clients, but it turns out that one of the fellows, one one executive who was from an ad agency that I had met socially called me up in 92 or so. And he was the head of uh, an agency in London. And he said, you know, I think we could use a strategy consultant because we're not making any money. And we used to make a ton of money. We're not making any money now. I just got bought by a holding company and they're really squeezing me. And I, there are plenty of consultants who know the ad business, but you don't. And I think that might be of benefit because maybe you'll see us with fresh eyes. So I went in as Farmer and Company with a couple guys and he described his situation. This is his definition of the problem. He said, listen, uh, our income used to be media-based commission and media prices, cost of airtime has gone up higher than inflation. So we were on a real upwards roller coaster ride for about 15 years. That's all changing. I mean, during that period of time, we were making so much money that we added costs. <laughs> and uh, to justify, we added research departments and we added this and that and the other. And we put twice as many people on the work as we didn't want the clients to think we were completely ripping them off. He said, but now it, you know, the commissions are coming down and things are changing and um, it's a lot harder to take costs out than it is to put them in. But there's still something wrong because I've moved the office to lower cost part of London and got rid of the research department, got rid of the library, got rid of this, got rid of that. We're still not making any money and I'm in trouble. So, I, I said, well, look, I mean, I'm going to treat, I'm going to, I said, don't tell anybody, but I'm going to treat you as if you're a factory that makes ads. I won't use that language with anyone, but I want to see what's happened to the process by which you make these ads. And has it changed over the last couple of years? Is there, is there something different going on where you'd make them less efficiently? He thought that was wonderful. You know, I was sort of treating him like he was an automotive manufacturer. Right. And uh, so I said, well, look, all I have to do is gather what your workloads are and, uh, you know, look at your prices and look at the cost to your people. Because I said, it's all about the money you get in, the cost that it takes to do it, and the amount of stuff that you're making, processing. Mm -hmm. Great. He says, that sounds terrific. No one ever suggested anything like that. So I, you know, sent my team in and we went looking for the, the person who had all this great data on the ads they make. The, the number of ones that they, they had for their 10 to 20 clients or so. And, of course, we discovered they don't have that data. They don't keep track of it. They, I mean, you could find it. You could go into the production department and find all the invoices for photographers and production companies and, and this and that and the other. But there wasn't anybody who said for this client we did so many print ads, so many TV ads, so many radio ads, and some of them were origination and some of them were adaptations of other material. None of that stuff. Or, you know, on this particular brief that we worked on, we put five creative teams and on another one we put one. I couldn't find any of that normal sort of production-oriented stuff. Mm -hmm. So I had to stop what I was doing and spend eight months trying to gather all that and everybody sort of rolled their eyes when i would ask they said well yeah typical consultant mba blah 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 they don't realize we're not about doing things like make ads we're all about big ideas uh -huh. what really matters are our ideas not the number of widgets we produce and i said well you know listen just humor me <laughs> so uh, we developed, I wanted to find out why this agency required 52 creative people. I'm doing this from memory. 52 creative people, 75 account people, 
and 40 production people to do whatever they did in 1992. And so I agreed with the the head. I was going to build a little Excel model that said, if I know what things they make and I know how long it takes to make all the different types of ads, and I'll do that through interviewing, et cetera, maybe I can develop this little Excel model that will say, if this is your workload, you did 360 ads during the year, uh, the the model will solve for... um, you needed 52 creatives for that. And so we spent a lot of time interviewing people to develop a, like a production model, like a TV ad takes, you know, this normally takes twice as much time. If you put twice as many people on it, because they develop twice as many ideas. Anyway, we did that. And to his horror, when we finished it, we said, the reason you're not making any money is your executive creators put five teams on every single brief because that was part of the data we were gathering, how many teams went on it, how much rework they had, et cetera. They're putting five teams on everything. And uh, does it take that many? <laughs> I said naively. <laughs> he almost had a heart attack, and he said, those sons of bitches. <laughs> Here I am not, not making any money, and he's lavishly allocating resources you know, to try to create more big ideas. And he said, look, I want you to rerun your model. Assume we put one creative team on every single brief, except for the really complicated ones. We'll put two. Um, Run your model and tell me how many creatives we need. And and I did that, and the answer was 36. Now let's take a break for a moment from our sponsor this week. This episode is brought to you by lynda.com, the only learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. For a free 10-day trial, visit lynda.com slash smartpeople. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash smartpeople. Lynda.com is for you. For listeners of this show, it's the problem solvers, the curious, people who want to make things happen. Maybe you want to master Excel, learn how to negotiate, build that new website, or boost your Photoshop skills. Go to Lynda.com and feed your curious mind. There's a few courses I really recommend on there, one being Growth Hacking Fundamentals. Another new one I just checked out is Learning to Be Assertive and Going Paperless Start to Finish. There's so many benefits to a lynda.com membership, such as watching and learning from top experts, streaming thousands of videos on demand, and learning at your own pace. Your lynda.com membership will give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics, anything you can think of, all for one flat rate. Whether you're looking to become an industry expert, you're passionate about a hobby, or you just want to try something new, I want you to visit lynda.com slash smartpeople and sign up for a free 10-day trial. It's free. Why not? That's l-y-n-d-a dot com slash smartpeople. Now back to the show. So wait, so, so that means it went to... For those of us that don't fully understand the advertising agency model, so that means you have a team that goes, I'm going to create the ad, and then you have other teams dedicated to making that oh, okay. ad come yeah. to life. Good good question, Chris. Here, here's the deal. Uh, you've got an automotive producer. He's got to launch a new car vehicle this year, a new model. And so, uh, you know, the car has certain features that you want to advertise, and it's, there's a certain segment of the population you want to direct it to. Well, look, you can put a creative team was was always a words person, a copywriter and a pictures person, an art director. So it's like, you know, someone does they're writing TV scripts or they're writing radio scripts or they're putting together print ads. But Mm -hmm. you've got someone who's good with graphics and pictures and uh, and you've got someone else who does the wordsmithing. So that's a team. Okay. now uh, you can decide that that you're going to take 10 ideas to the clients, which probably takes three or four teams, Mm. three or four teams is six Uh. to eight people working on that same brief. Then you're taking a whole bunch of ideas to the client to wow them with how creative you are. Mm. And the client says, well, I like this and I don't like that and take out this and take out that. And you winnow it down to maybe three ideas and they drop uh, everything except one team. Mm -hmm. But in the meantime, they rework all the material. And uh, so that one team finishes it up. So obviously, it's going to take a lot more capacity in the creative department if you're putting four or five teams on every single brief that goes to the office. This is unknown 
to anybody running the office because that creative department in those days was a law unto itself. In fact, they wouldn't even allow the the account handlers, the people that dealt with the client, they wouldn't even let them in on Mondays. Hmm. Uh, that was their own walled-in part of the office. So um, the creative directors just kept telling him that they needed more capacity, more capacity, more capacity, and he never knew why. I anyway, we solved that one, and so uh, he called those guys in for an adult conversation about the way they were running the department. Uh, they uh, demonstrated some rigidity, and so he fired him. Wow. <laughs> and then put another guy in charge and said, we're going to do this with lean resources, and you're going to use the farmer resource model, which is what this thing became mm. called. But what I learned, I'll tell you what I learned from that. What I learned is that the agencies had made so much money in the old days that they could afford any and all resources uh, against the client work and still have money left over for extravagant parties. Um, what was happening was that the income side was becoming weaker uh, because of changes in the way they were being paid, but but the culture wasn't adjusting. The culture was behaving just as it had behaved in the past. Right. And uh, that has actually been the story of the last 25 years that I've been in the ad agency world. Um, is that they are always operating as if it's like the 60s and not taking a hard look at what today's reality is and, and you know, staffing up for it. So in the time that um, I have worked in the industry, and I guess, I w again, this is another set of fortunate circumstances. I, I was able to see it when it was rich, and I'm working in it today when it's very poor. But back then, they had media commission income they were getting 15 percent on everything that a client spent buying uh, magazine space or television time and the agency had all that money to play with and they used to allocate tons of people to it but as the commission system disappeared and became something completely different where they get paid by the head and then clients globalized and when they globalized they didn't like if you had a brand of detergent all over the world, well, you wanted the ad, the basic ad for that to be created in one place and have it adapted everywhere else mm -hmm. instead of every single agency office in every country in the world doing original work, which is the way it used to work. So you had globalization, you had the change of remuneration, and uh, then the next thing you had was procurement taking over the fee-setting function, and they started crashing the fees. Then you had the introduction of digital and social um and agencies are kind of snobs you know the, the 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 big agencies that did all the great television work etc they thought that other stuff was kind of schlocky because sure. you need computer programmers for it so specialized agencies that did digital work came into existence and the big agencies thought that was fine but lo and behold they ended up having to share the relationship they didn't own it anymore and today uh, a big client, a P&G, a Nestle, you, you know, someone like that, has got 30 to 50 agencies working for them on, wow. on certain brands. And, and no one voice from the agency is very loud, if you can imagine it. So what I have seen is a whole series of, let's call them economic and strategic changes in the agency business, started with changes in remuneration, globalization, um, and then a, an explosion in the new forms of media requiring uh, expertise. Oh, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't throw away the fact that the agencies, when they were so profitable, were bought by holding companies. Well, holding companies only want one thing from an agency, yep. profits. Yep. And so all of a sudden, now agencies uh, couldn't just spend the way they wanted. They, they had to deliver profits to the holding company. And the, the net of this is a couple things, and it's what the book is all about. Fees have come down and continue to come down. And that is an accelerating process because, because since agencies are downsizing to match the uh, reduction in fees so they can deliver profits, they're having to do more work because clients are experimenting with work. And they still don't negotiate how much work they do. They'll still do anything and everything that the client asks for. 
Um, and they're doing uh, not a very good job. So the quality is going down. And because the quality is going down, procurement is cutting the fees and firing them at an accelerated pace. So what used to be a 15 year or a 40 year relationship became a 15, became a 10, became a four is now about a two year relationship. So today's agency is one of 20 with junior people working on a subset of the client's work having to share it with other agencies, uh, having the client dictate what the work will be uh, because they decide who gets what and when they get it, having client dictate what the fees will be and they're always less than last year. And if you complain about it, you might get fired. So they have gone from being the madman, mad men who used to own their clients mm -hmm. back in the good old days <laughs> when they made more money than their clients did to uh, sort of, uh, you know, shoeshine boys today. I mean, uh, literally, there has been a complete change in the capabilities, status, and, uh, and situation of agency people. And I've written a book that calls it Madison Avenue Manslaughter. And my thesis is to the senior executives, particularly the chief executives, you're allowing your agencies to destroy themselves. Because it because you do not have a strategy to put a floor under prices and improve the quality. You're just addressing the holding company's need for profits and you're letting everything else just get destroyed. And that is a, a failure of leadership and it's going to blow up soon, somewhere, somehow. Well, well, and I definitely, I mean, I understand that from an outsider's perspective, obviously the book goes into much greater detail, but is there any argument behind or is there any truth behind the argument that, hey, look, maybe ad agencies are just outdated and we can now reach. I mean, I can reach 100,000 people on social for 100 bucks and, you know, it's adapt or die. Well, it, it is except for one thing. I First of all, I don't think the clients or the advertisers have got a better handle on how to spend the money. And let's not forget, advertisers are having a tough time with their brands. You know, they've seen a revolution in the way their products are distributed and priced, too. I mean, you think about uh, you think about uh, anything that's on a supermarket shelf is is matched by a private label brand, mm -hmm. you know, which sells for 10 to 40 percent lower. Mm -hmm. uh, you think about Internet commerce. Uh, which is so reduced the cost of getting to the consumer that they're extracting major price concessions. And big companies, you think about it, Procter & Gamble is is not growing and they've gone through a couple of changes in management. They just announced they're going to take billions out of their, um, out of their marketing spend. Coca-Cola is in trouble. McDonald's is in trouble mm -hmm. because they are not growing and they're not, they're not growing and they're not delivering growing uh, margins. So I would say advertisers are under enormous performance pressure and they themselves have been subjected to their own cost cutting routines mm -hmm. because they've generated profits by cutting their own their own organizations to the bone. They've also leaned on suppliers. So everybody's trying to do more in a in a revolutionarily changed market environment with fewer resources and nobody has the answer. And I think uh Listen, the other part of my book, I talk a little bit about the management consulting business, which has done nothing but grow. Um, when I was at Bain, it was about 100 people, you know, and went up to maybe four or 500 people. It's four to 5,000 people today. Mm -hmm. uh, McKinsey, with whom I had a summer job uh, back in the early 70s when I was at business school, was, gee, I was in their L.A. office. It had 20 people. Uh, McKinsey has 10,000 people worldwide today. So... And the management consulting firms are not seeing their fees go down. If anything, they're still being paid a very healthy multiple on the cost of their people. Mm -hmm. So the consulting firms who have absolutely dedicated themselves to helping their clients grow and make more money are doing very well indeed. And I think that, uh, I think that corporations need the best brains possible uh, to solve their problems but they're not getting the best brains possible uh, from advertising agencies because, first of all, their sal salaries are terrible mm -hmm. and they don't retain people because they overwork them. 
and they're treated very badly by their clients. They're not treated with any respect. So it's not a great place to work. And um, the management consulting firms, you look at Bain's, you know, Bain pays very top dollar, sure. recruits the best people. Oh, yeah. And is always among the maybe the top five companies in the country for employment enjoyment and uh, uh, feelings of respect and feeling that they're doing important work. So oh, yeah. I, in the book, I contrast, well, what is it the consultants have done uh, to uh, give themselves growth and status with their clients? And what is it that advertising agency have done to, to, to dig, it, dig their own grave? And, and I think, I mean, I think that's a fantastic analogy and one that I definitely want to read more when I get a chance to, to read the book and it comes out because I'm thinking of it, does it have to do with the value that's being delivered? I keep thinking about the, really the democratization of business in the sense that the internet has made it a global economy. You get, um, you can get things made in China easier and sent over here. You can do things on a 3D printer. The whole world is your market, so costs can go down. So is there, is it the fact that maybe we just don't need to spend as much on advertising, hence the reason why the advertising agencies are losing their income, and instead we'd rather devote that to these management consultants who can shore up our business model and strategy? Is that, well, you know? Well, in a way, that is what's happening subtly, um, uh, because certainly uh, if you look at the relative proportion of fees paid to ad agencies versus paid to consultants, right. even at a given client, there's been a huge shift. Um, now, the consultants themselves, if you look at their websites, you will see that Bain, McKinsey, Boston, Consulting Group, A.T. Kearney, and the rest, they spend 100% of their web space talking about how they deliver growth and profitability and improved results in what it's worth. Bain started that back in the 80s. I was there at the time when we formally wrote a mission statement that said our mission is to create value for our clients and that if we create value for our clients, we'll create value for ourselves. And so the Bain mission statement, which is still valid now 30 years later, uh, in which they show on their website that their clients outperform the market indices, but it is an organization of four or 5,000 people in which all of the training, all of the analysis, all of the mentorship, and all of the, uh, the studies that they do for clients are directed towards what is your current situation? What do we need to do to make it better from a profitability and a growth standpoint? Uh, and and more competitive against the people that you compete against. You go to an AG website, there's not a single idea. They only talk about how many creative awards they've won, uh, yeah. how creative they are. Now, clients are not paying for creativity. Mm -hmm. In those rare cases, like let's say the Geico Gecko. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what may be the most creative advertising on television. There is a one-to-one -one relationship between that creativity and Geico's a um, growth as a, an insurance company, but they also spend in media three times their closest competitor. Wow! <laughs> so they they outspend them in dollars, and and they've they've got a quirky way of communicating the same message over and over and over again. That's the only case I know of where a client is really paying for creativity, but they're also paying for an enormous amount of media time, right? Uh, in every different type of media. Um, so other than that, clients don't pay for creativity and they don't pay agencies for winning awards. What they want are results. And I, in my book, I argue that agencies completely missed the client uh, obsession with shareholder value. And I'll put that in quotes, quote, shareholder value. Right. Beginning in about 1990, uh, which is about the time the consultants all said, we got to get on the shareholder value wagon if we want to protect our own business. Mm. Agencies have continued to tout, uh, we're creative, we win awards. And they behave, they don't measure the work they do, they don't negotiate the amount of work that they're going to do. They talk about creativity and service. We'll do whatever the client needs, and we're creative and create big ideas. Well, that doesn't happen to be generating results for clients. And so the fees have come down. Mm. And with the fees coming down, the capabilities come down, and it's sort of 
turned into a doom loop. On the other hand, you look at the consulting industry, it's exploding. I know. Um, I know friends who are consultants, and I cannot believe the hourly rate that the company charges. They get, they, yes, the hourly rates are, are really, they're pretty staggering. Yeah. But listen, you know, there are sharp, there, there are procurement people at each of those clients who are doing their sums and determining whether they're getting a return on investment. Sure. And uh, the consulting fees have not been touched. They haven't been touched in 30 years, mm -hmm. the structure of them. Whereas uh, it, with, and I put in my book, what, you know, what the decline in agency fees has looked like uh, in terms of price over the last 25 years. And it's, you know, it's unsustainable. So the book is about a phenomenon of growing workloads and declining fees. It explains all the reasons behind the declining fees, but it really points a finger at agencies have kind of failed to take on as a responsibility to deliver value for their clients, that that's what the clients will pay for. That's what their clients need. And that's how the agency should organize themselves. And, and I, I said to one of my clients, you know what you really need to be? You need to be Bain and company with creatives, right? You need to have the same kind of front end people that can come in and analyze the hell out of, you know, costs, customer perceptions, and pricing and competition. And then you need to develop creative scopes of work. That's the, the program I work. You need creative scopes of work that will do something about it. But the most important people have got to be those front end people, your so-called, your what are now your account people, mm -hmm. who for the most part get whipped around by the client and told what to do and, um, and uh, are, are doing everything they can to keep from losing the client. You need right. to turn those people into consultants. Yeah, no, I, that's a really good uh, analogy and, and, and viewpoint because I think about in terms of how complicated advertising has gotten. And I mean, I'm the VP of marketing for a nonprofit. We're small and we don't work with advertising agencies, but I think on a daily basis how to reach you know, the people we want to reach. And then sure. same thing with this podcast. How do we reach listeners? So I can imagine scaled up if, and, and I've talked to people, I've talked to, uh, advertisers, not these huge agencies, but people who do try to increase visibility. And I would rather somebody come to me and say, I'm going to learn about your business. I know about your industry. Then I'm going to come up with the plan and the strategy and the message. Then you're hired. But what's happening, at least what I'm understanding from you, is the, the client is saying, I want you to create a commercial that's 30 seconds that runs here and does this. Go ahead. And you're already handcuffing what the agency can deliver. Chris, you are absolutely spot on. You're absolutely spot on. And it's one of the unintended consequences of, first, agency weakness Secondly, this thing that I call the balkanization of the industry, where, you know, clients now have a whole portfolio or a harem of uh, agencies mm. instead of what used to be called the agency of record. You know, the agency of record, like McCann Erickson used to do everything for Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola now probably has 50 different agencies doing different, th different things. So McCann Erickson is certainly no longer the AOR. Um, but one of the unintended consequences is if you've got 20 to 50 different agencies, you've got to be the integrator. You've got to be the control tower yes, as yes. the advertiser. Yes. On the other hand, the advertiser has been downsized too. <laughs> so they're faking it. <laughs> they're faking it. And um, uh, in thinking, we really know what we need to do. They don't know. And mm -hmm. they're, they are being depleted. I would say the best ideas of 50 agencies in the kind of communications form that they can put together are not half as good or one-tenth as good as the best ideas from a fully integrated agency yes. takes the responsibility. And I wrote in the book, I said, you've got to get control of these relationships. You have to propose the scope of work. Mm -hmm. You have to understand the client's performance problems. You have to have a point of view about what is the best communication program to solve their performance problems. And you bring it to the client early in the year, like October, before the next fiscal year begins and say, this is the program that we think we should do. By the way, this is what we did at Bain uh, and what I know goes on at McKinsey and, and BCG elsewhere. 
when a client says, I want you to study this or that or the other and blah, 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 we, we'd always trying to find a way where we could make that our own study based on what our own point of view was about what their situation was. That was always one of the big sales challenges. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't see agencies today taking ownership of a relationship, taking responsibility for the client's performance problems, and recommending a program of work that will solve it. I, in fact, the, the, the poor folks that are trying to run these relationships today don't have the training for that. They don't have the pay grade for that. They don't have the respect for that. And they certainly don't have, uh, they're not being driven to do it by their own management. Yes. I, so, think, I think that last point of really why they're not doing it is so key. It made me think about before, right before you and I got on this call, I was, John and I, the, the guy that does the production for the show, we, um, we help companies, basically companies hire us to create their podcasts and train their staff or whoever it might be to, to keep the podcast going. So um, I had a call from a company that was inquiring about this and we spent about an hour on the phone and they, they said, here's what we want. And unknowingly, I didn't know that this was a, a good practice, but I said, look, I can do that for you. If you want me to just say I can do that, I can do that. But I'll tell you why it's a bad idea. I'll tell you why we need to modify it this way. And here's how I would do it. And I, it was along the lines of the structure of the show they want to create, the length, you know, a lot of things that I know about. And at the end, he said, wow, you're right. This is your area. Let's do it. And let's move forward. And and they're going to be a client. And it's the what you were saying it would have been easier if I had a boss, it would have been easier to say to the client, yes, sir, I'll do what you want. And then not worry about the performance. Right. But, but because I am the boss, I can say, I'm worried about how this will end up. If it goes well, we all win. Here's what will work. And that's what the advertising agencies need to do as the experts in that field. You're so right. Uh, and you know, clients are actually grateful when you say I could do that. Like you did, you like yeah. you could have. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I could do that, but let me tell you how I would prefer to go about doing this, mm -hmm. so that we end up with the right thing. Yep. And I remember, um, you know, when I was with when I was with Bain, I was uh, in, basically with them in Europe, uh, opening up offices and things, and nobody knew who we were. I had to do that a hundred times because we just get invited into beauty contests where. They'd write up a brief, you know, they'd write up a proposal for a, a study. They'd give it to three different firms and say, bid on it. And I always said, you know, that isn't really how we work. And that isn't how our clients discover that we add value. Here's what I'd like to do before I respond. I would like the opportunity to spend two afternoons interviewing your folks um, to get a better handle on the industry issues um, uh, with respect to cost, customers, competitors, what have you. Mm -hmm. And then I will feel that I have a better understanding of, and, and can address this. And, you know, some people would say, no, that's not what we're asking you to do. But when you got someone to bite on that, you always got the work. Yes. Because you wrote a much better proposal. It was, you could kind of throw away the beauty contest <laughs> proposal <laughs> and then do your own thing based on what you heard. Um, um, I, I really regret that today, um, everything is so overly handled by procurement that they have these standard corporate processes for how you hire a consultant, how you, uh, hire an ad agency, how you do this, how you do that, because it, they've just bled the creativity out of it and uh, made it a lot harder for people that are actually good at what they do, mm -hmm. uh, to deliver. And, um, you know, all in the name of standardization, everybody's looking for best practices. And they think that if you standardize certain procurement practices, uh, you get the better services at lower cost. But I kind of am nostalgic for the days when a senior executive brought you in, you chatted about something for a while, uh, you'd come back with a letter proposal uh, nothing that a lawyer ever looked at yes. and you'd tell him how much you thought it was going to cost. And uh, he'd say, oh, I can handle that. I've got budget for that somewhere. And you'd shake hands 
And the next thing you knew, you submitted an invoice and you got a check. Wow. And you did the work. And <laughs> I have never seen those days. Huh? <laughs> I have no, never seen I mean, those. <laughs> I'm dating myself, but it actually used to be like that. And um, uh, and I cut my teeth, you know, in consulting at a time in the in the 70s and the 80s uh, when it was still like that. And then procurement kind of took over. And everything got standardized, and it's an awful lot less fun today because you need a purchase order, and you might talk. I remember, listen, I started work for a client, a more of a consulting thing, not six months ago. Chief marketing officer of a big company, well-known company, called me in and wanted me to do certain things, and um, I submitted a proposal, and I put in a first invoice, and I did a lot of work. And then <laughs> about a month later, I got this call from procurement, Michael Farmer? Yes, yes. You're with Farm and Company, right? Yes. I said, well, we don't know you. You're not in our system. Um, you, you're you not an approved supplier. And I said, well, you know, I've been working uh, for you for a month. <laughs> right. uh, and they said, well, who are you working for? And I gave them the name of the chief market officer. They said, well, she doesn't know. She doesn't know how it's really played around here because uh. she has no authority to hire anybody whatsoever the, the cmo said, the cmo <laughs> and i said well maybe uh, maybe you should let her know um and you know what ensued was a a very difficult month in which everything got realigned hmm. but uh that is the kind of stuff that goes on today and i see that people who need authority and need flexibility and have a good brain and know where they might be able to get good talent uh, are a little bit hobbled by what I'll call procurement um, practices. Sure. Which are kind of understandable. If you've got a multi-billion dollar contract, sure. you know, you, you've got to be thoughtful about those things. There certainly have been plenty of abuses. But at the level that I've operated, um, you know, over the years, um, and I, even even with the big consulting firms, uh, it's it's more and more difficult to get something initiated that is the thing that you think is the right thing to do, and right. it's a shame. Right. It's kind of it's kind of a shame. Uh, it's a sub. It's nothing like what my agency folks put up with. <laughs> yeah, I can um, imagine. But they've also made themselves victims of a process by not fighting back in an appropriate way. And the thing I really take them to task for in my book is how is it that you. Uh, that you can work with people and get paid tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, and you don't even have a negotiated list of what you're going to do for them. Uh, how could you ever defend that it's the right list of things to do? How can you take ownership for it if you don't have a way of documenting it and measuring it and negotiating it and knowing how many people it takes and what kind of a fee you should charge? Mm -hmm. And uh, the major fault is that, that there are you know, operating by 1960s practices when they were paid three times as much money as they are today. Right. Well, for and, a simpler job. Yeah. You know? And, and, you know, as you mentioned, I, I can't wait to get my hands on, on the book, Madison Avenue manslaughter. Well, Michael, I, I have to say I have thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. One of my favorites. Thank you so much. And I want to give you a chance. Again, we mentioned the book is Madison Avenue manslaughter. Really looking forward to diving in more, especially after this conversation. Um, is there anywhere else that you know our listeners can find you? Is the, does the book have a dedicated website? Do you have a website? I certainly have a website at my uh, my company is Farmer and Company. Okay, uh, Farmer and Company LLC, a consulting firm. But if anybody Google's uh, Madison Avenue manslaughter, you know. My website comes up. The publishers come up. The the book's website is Madison Avenue Manslaughter Book dot com. Uh, that will come up. But the book is covered in a lot of different places. Mm -hmm. And or Michael Farmer. I mean, I know there's a guy who hunts meteorites, and there's a former <laughs> baseball player, and there is a murder victim named Michael Farmer. But anything, <laughs> if you put Michael Farmer advertising, uh, you'll get it. <laughs> that's amazing. Can can it be pre ordered? Uh, Do you know? I'd have to look. Not yet, but um, you know, it's funny. It's on Amazon UK, and it's have it in stock. And uh, I just ordered a copy to send to a friend in the UK. Uh, it, you cannot pre-order it yet here on Amazon, but I suspect in the next week or two it'll be available. Okay. 
uh, or for pre-order in any case. Okay, great. Well, Michael, again, thank you so much. I will um, reach back out to you as soon as this goes live within the next couple of weeks. Um, and I look forward to sharing it with our audience. And thank you very much for your for well, being so thanks generous. For giving, thanks for giving me this opportunity. It's been great fun. And I got to talk about some things I don't think about all that often. So thanks, <laughs> thanks to you. That's great. Thank you again. Okay. All thanks, right, Michael, thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Michael Farmer. Any episode that we get to talk about the growth mindset is a good episode in my book. Don't forget to head over to Amazon and pick up his book, Madison Avenue Manslaughter, an inside view of fee-cutting clients, profit-hungry owners, and declining ad agencies. If you're picking up Michael's book or just doing some Amazon shopping, please don't forget to use the smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon link as it gives us a nice little kickback at no cost to you, and it's a fantastic way to support the show. If you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can reach us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. If you're looking for other easy ways to help support the show, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a rating, review, and comment over there. It really does help out the show, and we appreciate it in advance. If this is your first time listening to Smart People Podcast or you just haven't subscribed yet, please don't forget to subscribe in iTunes or on whatever podcatcher you are currently using. That way you won't miss out on any future episodes of Smart People Podcast. We've got a lot of really good stuff coming up. But if you do have suggestions for guests, please send those our way, either via our email or Twitter. Well, that's it for me. We will see you all next week.